Our today's guest is part of our series of millennial interviewees. He's originally from Venezuela and is an immigrant rights advocate who's been fighting for pro-immigration policies for the past 10 years. He writes for the Huffington Post and was featured in the New York Times, Medium, Vox, and the list goes on. He's also a DACA recipient as well as a media and tech enthusiast. We welcome Juan Escalante to our show. I'm your host, Salia, and you're listening to The Alien Chronicles. Uh, welcome, Juan. I'm so excited you could come on my show. So how did you end up in the United States? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I came to the United States uh, at the age of 11. Uh, my parents had a visa known as a, as a work visa, as an L1, uh, for those immigration experts or hawks out there. <laughs> <laughs> and that visa essentially does a couple of things. Number one, it allows you to live and work in the United States with the understanding that you will have a dual purpose, which is a concept in immigration law known that you have uh, intentions of staying in the United States after a certain mm. amount of time. Mm. So with that visa, my dad and us as dependents of that were able to obtain a work permit, a driver's license, and a social security number, uh, all valid and all legal documents that belong to us. And, you know, we fled Venezuela uh, right as Hugo Chavez was coming into power and it was around the, the year 2000. So definitely on a plane, definitely with a visa and, uh, you know, definitely with my parents. Uh, and with my two brothers. And where did you move in United States? So we first arrived um, in in Miami-Dade County, down in South Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, uh, after a number of years, my parents uh, eventually, you know, decided to move. I moved to Leon County, which is up north, uh, where Tallahassee, Florida is the capital of the state. And I've lived there basically, you know, for the last nine years or so. I, res- I recently just moved to Washington, D.C., from Tallahassee. So was, why did your parents choose Florida? Was there a specific reason? Was it a conscious decision? I think it was just, my parents chose Florida just out of the sense that, you know, um, one of my dad's brothers was already there. So the family connection is always, you know, probably the, the most beneficial one when it comes down to this kind of stuff. Uh, and outside of that, it was just also the ease of the language. You know, Florida is a very diverse state specifically the southern part when it comes down to immigrants and the ability of people to be comfortable speaking spanish i guess you know for lack of a better word my parents are not very fluent Hmm. in english so the ability to rely on some help from family plus the ability of being able to rely on their spanish uh in the beginning you know it was able uh it was definitely a, a very big help for both of them yeah, of course. So did you have any exposure to American culture before you moved to U.S., like growing up TV or? Yeah, um, you know, I, I used to go to a bilingual school when I lived in Venezuela. It was very important for my parents to, for their kids to learn a second language. So we actually were enrolled at a school that was basically, you know, half the time in English, half the time in Spanish and mm. um, just went through those channels. But, you know, where I come from, it's not too foreign to see, you know, uh, small fragments of American culture. I mean, everybody grows up watching like, you know, Disney movies and, and, and movies like Home Alone and stuff like that. So you get to see like, you know, people living in New York and you get to see like a, a completely different, uh, perspective in life that's not, ex- it's not exactly reflective of Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, and it always leaves you wondering, um, you know, what exactly that looks like in the, in the long term. But, uh, I guess to, to, to fully, answer your question of very iconic things that people grew up here in the States. But uh, for me, it was just a completely different experience just on the sheer basis that, you know, I lived in a different country. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. So can you share some of your childhood memories in terms of interactions with classmates, with friends, neighbors, when, after you moved to us, like initial, say, I don't know, six months to a year. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, like everything in life, especially at a young age, it's, it's, it was a very difficult start for me. I mean, you know, when I came here, I was literally launched immediately into into middle school. And 
mm. for anybody that's entrepreneurial school in this country, you know, it's a very weird and awkward phase in your life. But at the same time, um, there were a lot of challenges, you know, trying to adjust to the educational system and to the language and beyond. So I remember one of the main things, like, I think within the first couple of months, I just went home one day and just had a breakdown. I told my mom that mm. I had to, that I, that I wanted to go back, that I wanted to go back to my old school, that I wanted to go back to my old friends and stuff like that. Mm. And, you know, I, after a while, you kind of come to terms that, you know, there is no going back once. Yeah. And two, that, you know, you also have to kind of manage and, mm. and go out there and give you a great shot. So uh, after that, you know, uh, you get adjusted to the language, you eventually make friends and you try to adjust as best as possible. But I do remember, you know, having to experience the reality of living in a new country where your family is not exactly around the corner and, you know, your parents are struggling to speak the language and you're still trying to figure out how exactly you're going to make a new life in this new place and you know there's obviously it's ups and downs but uh, i would be lying if i said that it wasn't challenging at first were you stereotyped in any way um i don't particularly think so hmm. in, specifically at, at that age um i think part of the of the sense was just mainly childhood uh, like very childish maneuvers you know what i mean like hmm. Uh, the school that I ended up going to for middle school was extremely diverse. I mean, everybody basically spoke Spanish, you know, for, for the better half. I would, I would venture to say like a majority of the Spanish, I mean, a majority of the students are Spanish speakers, uh, also immigrants, you know, that had been in the States just as long as I had, or if not a little bit more. I mean, I remember the girl who I sat across from in my sixth grade, sixth grade English class. Her name was Vanessa. And she was just, you know, she had just arrived to the United States a year before. So it wasn't uncommon to see, you know, students coming into the school and, you know, like the older students who have been there longer, two two years to have that already mastered language who kind of bully you because you didn't know how to like speak English. But, mm. but you know, not nonsense that kind of made me self-aware that I didn't belong. You know, it was just mainly like very cultural things that eventually just kind of fix themselves uh, as opposed to some of the really, and I say this mainly under the lens of comparison, to some of the uh, individuals that I've met throughout my time working in immigration policy, mm. you know, who have, have had to live in places like Oklahoma, Mississippi, yeah, Alabama, sure, yeah. you know, the, the very different uh, situations that are experienced there. So uh, when you take all of that kind of stuff into account, you know, my experience is just, uh, I consider it to be very childish, you know, child's games. Yeah. So what was the biggest cultural shock to you um, when, when you, when you came and while you were settling in in United States, I think the biggest culture shock was essentially um, probably the education system. You know, uh, in Venezuela, you're you know, we're, we're, you're fifth grade, fourth grade, and you're being taught basic uh, algebra and basic geometry, hmm. um, and you arrive to the United States and they're doing long division in sixth grade analysis. Like I, I don't, I don't understand how this is compatible, how this is even allowed. You know, the, so there's that. There's the challenges of growing up and and you know, understanding that you can't just go and eat your favorite traditional meal down down the road. Down the road. But I mean, uh, I was very fortunate that my parents made us feel as comfortable as possible throughout the transition moment uh, those first couple of years. So, uh, Juan, what are some traditions that your family brought along with them from Venezuela that you carry on today and are part of your identity? Yeah, you know, um, I think the family aspect of, of it's probably the biggest thing, you know, the South America, uh, South American countries and specifically in Venezuelan culture, you know, the family comes first step of deal. But mm. I, I'd be remiss if I told you that we have adhere to any sort of like specific cultural norms or traditions. I mean, uh, I guess, you know, doing, doing the holidays, you know, at the end of the year, my parents will essentially sit down and make, you know, holiday, like, tra like traditional holiday meals. Uh, specific to, to Venezuela as a whole, but I wouldn't say it goes much further than that. Uh, if anything, um, I think it exemplifies, you know, how people who immigrate have to essentially sacrifice uh, a piece of their identity. Yeah. Right. To, to essentially blend in or uh, assimilate to their new country. And, uh, that's essentially, you know, the reality that, that my family lives in. You know, we, we care about each other. We remember our home country, but at the end of the day, you know, I wouldn't say that there's any specific qualification that would say like this is, you know, something that we used to do back, back home, uh, mainly because, you know, when you immigrate specifically to the United States, you're trying to do a couple of things, right? Mm. You're trying to, you're trying to work, go to school, yeah. you know, make a life. And, and, and oftentimes, uh, 
unfortunately, what goes, what, what, what's thrown out the window first, in my opinion, is essentially these, these, uh, cultural norms or traditions, especially if you don't grow up in a community that's very, uh, self-centered and that kind of stuff. Saying, for example, like my family, I didn't grow up in the, in a nuclear Venezuelan community like Weston or El Doral, which are main hubs of Venezuelans down in South Florida. Hmm. We just lived in a different place with different cultures and people just kind of kept to themselves. Yeah. Um, Florida, unlike New York or Chicago or much more densely populated areas, uh, it's a very, um, in, it's a very insulated place hmm. in the sense that like you basically, you know, you don't have to know your neighbor if you don't have to. Uh, everybody drives, you know, nobody walks down the street. So it's, it's a little bit more challenging to kind of see this kind of stuff, uh, continue along unless you live in a community that's essentially derivative, that, that is essentially populated by, uh, people of your home country. But do you think, because as you said, immigrants tend to live in their own communities and don't interact as much, um, across, like with other, um, individuals outside their community. Do you think that, um, perpetuates stereotypes about immigrants, uh, in terms of whether they can assimilate in U.S.? Although, honestly, I don't like the term assimilation. Uh, but do you think immigrants, uh, have a responsibility to do that and that will change perceptions around them? I think it, it depends on who you ask, right? Because mm. everybody's going to see this kind of question with a different lens and a different opinion. You know, somebody that's first generation immigrants like my parents and myself, you know, will have a different answer than, mm. you know, if you were to ask like a great, great grandkids, you know, and then there's also the question as to like, how do people see it? And, you know, if like a, uh, somebody that's been born and raised in the, in the United States, you know, mm. whose parents have lived different generations, they're, they're going to give you a different answer. My, my perception is, 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 is such that it's, it's conducive of a lot of environmental factors, right? Mm. You're going to assimilate if you have to work a job, go to school and help sustain your family because at the end of the day, you need to understand how this country and your state and your community works in order to actually make it right. Mm. Especially if you live in a state that's challenging, that, that has a very, you know, challenging atmosphere. Uh, take Georgia, for example, like yeah. a very harsh, you know, not so, you know, immigrant friendly place unless you live within the confinements of the city of Atlanta. Mm. So, you know, take someone that essentially grows up in that part of the country, uh, as opposed to somebody that grows up in New York, who also is essentially, uh, you know, has to, you, you often hear, you know, stories of how people have to live between one world and another, right? Mm. You have to go back home and they probably live in whatever neighborhood. You know, they're, you know, they're, uh, other people of their home country or their culture mm. live in. And then they have to go outside of that bubble and, and face the world that way. Um, I think for some, whether it's intentional or not, uh, I can't speak for everybody. I think there will be an unintentional factor where, you know, people will have to come to this understanding that, you know, the further down the road you, you go, living in, in, in another country as an immigrant, whether it's in the United States or, or elsewhere, right? Uh, you will ultimately assimilate to some degree, uh, which is why it's even more important for families. You know, the, we always hear these, we always, I, I think it's, it's if, if there is a stereotype, it's perpetuated in movies today, right? Mm. You always hear, you know, the, the annoying immigrant parents saying like, this is not part of our culture or yeah. whatever, <laughs> and that, right? So like, I think like a really good example um, and this is the first one that came to my head, not, not to say that specific to anything, but a, a really good example is a series on Netflix called Master of None, right? Yeah. With Mrs. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Very traditional, you know, uh, I believe it's Indian American family. Yes. Um, you know, and the, 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 I think specifically the father and the mother who are essentially painted out to be these, these very stereotypical people played by the rules of their, of their culture, adhere very much so to it, are unwilling to give certain traditions or, lend certain, you know, leeway to their kids. They want them to make sure that they grow up almost as if they were growing up in India. You know, the kids are their own people, right? A season star is a comedian mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and essentially he struggles to retain the identity that his parents want him mm-hmm. to grow up to have, you know, to make sure that he's a proud Indian American, uh, individual in the United States versus the life that he wants as a Indian American, you know, like he wants to, go out and eat pasta whenever he wants in New York and he wants to, you know, go to weird bars with his friends and, 
you know, write jokes and, you know, work for whatever. So, like, I think it's going to be a constant struggle that, that, that you see that in within the stereotype of those parents, right, mm. that you see in these movies and these series is essentially there is some truth in it. And it's not because of the stereotype. It's mainly because your parents or the generation before you will always try to anchor you mm to remember where you came from and will always try to anchor you in some of the traditions that were passed down to them because there's always that notion that you may not be able to go back home. And this is the only piece of your identity or, you know, the identity of your parents or those people who came before you that you have to essentially, uh, you know, pass on to your children. I mean, think of it this way. Growing up in the United States, my, my mother always told me, you know, in, whenever she would drive me places, uh, she would always look, when we were at a red light and she would turn around and say, like, you know, when you get married, make sure you can speak Spanish. I don't care who you get married to, <laughs> but, I'm not, but I'm not going to be one of those grandmothers who can't speak Spanish to their grandkids. And, you know, that was essentially her manifesting her fear that, you know, you know, she was able to uh, help me learn a second language, but that I wasn't going to be able to do the same specifically in my first language, which is my, my first tongue, which is essentially Spanish. Yeah. But here's my thing, Juan, because to me, there is nothing wrong with that, right? Um, uh, accepting American culture, uh, being part of America, um, and also, uh, maintaining your identity. Oh, yeah. I, 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 yeah. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't say it as a negative. I'm just saying like the way that is perceived and the way that is interpreted by some. No, no, absolutely. Uh, I, I, yeah. I completely agree with you. And that's what I'm trying to say that to your point, it's, it's so true that, that, that's what, um, immigrants expect of their, their, uh, children, um, to maintain that, that sense of identity. Um, and that's why I don't like the term melting pot as well, because I think, again, the term, uh, perpetuates this notion that everybody is sane. I don't think America, in America, everybody is same. We are all unique and we maintain our unique identity while being as American as we can be. That's uh, and that's what's uh, great about America. So, yeah, yes. no, absolutely. I don't, uh, you know, and, and it's funny because in the way that you interpret it or the way that you see it, right? The way you explain to me, I think it's just, uh, and just in this back and forth of, if, if, you know, for those people who are listening, you know, if you, if you think, if you really think about it, what I'm talking about a lot of times is challenges, you know, people who have to reason with, you know, family expectations versus your own personal identity. It's not that much different, in my opinion, to some degree or another of a family that wants their kid to grow up to be a doctor, yeah. you know, whether this family lives in Oklahoma and they're, you know, uh, born and raised, you know, full bred Americans yeah. versus somebody else that just came here, you know, whether or not that child wants to be a doctor, that's completely that, that that's completely separate, but it's just cultural norms and societal norms that essentially mm -hmm. are continue to press down on this individual and mold them and shape them through our experiences. Now granted, you know, that opens the door to, you know, a variety of conversations, you know, socioeconomical status and mm -hmm. opportunity given and stuff like that. But when it comes down to the very basic level, you have people who are willing to start from scratch in another country, right? And all they want is for a piece of what they remember their home being to yeah. be kept or handed down to the next generation. And like you said, there's nothing bad with that because that's the only thing that people preserve after giving up everything, their valuables, their families, etc. And I think that's often what's missed in this discussion that, you know, if we have an accent or if we cook with certain ingredients or mm. if we, you know, uh, celebrate a holiday in a specific way, those are the only ways that we are able to remember those people who we left behind, who are only able to come every now and then because we can't leave the country. We can't see them as often as we used to in our home countries. You know, moving here was your parents' decision. Um, you were a child when you moved here, so you didn't have a say in this matter. And, and you've already touched upon the toll it took on your family, on your parents. And obviously, I'm sure it must have impacted family dynamic as well. Um, do they regret their decision now? I mean, my, do yeah, my your parents. parents regret? Yeah. No, my parents, I think if, <clears throat> excuse me, I think if my parents, you know, celebrate anything, it's the idea that, that they were, that they essentially bet on a winning horse. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. You know, I come from a country that's essentially experiencing some of the worst political, economic mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and social 
turbulence in, in, in the Southern Hemisphere, probably next to Brazil and probably next mm. to Bolivia. Mm. You know, for them, despite the fact that we obviously and undoubtedly um, face significant challenges in the United States, um, to them, uh, it's always comforting to know that they don't have to stand in line waiting for hours to buy one pack of chicken mm. or that if they wanted to, they could buy one bottle of shampoo of every brand as mm. opposed to having to fight over the only thing that's on the shelf. And, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like a trade-off, right? You know, mm. and, and, and I, and I always try to put myself in my, in my parent in my issues with my parents. I mean, they grew up in a Venezuela that was booming economically. Right. And for them to essentially have to come to a, terms with the fact that they still have family back there who is essentially mm. struggling one mm. and then two that the home or the country that they left is no longer viable it's not like you know uh, it's not like going back to you know the to london or it's going back to like canada mm. or it's like mm. going back to a country that yeah like you may have lived there for a year and it's changed you know in, in some way shape or form but like when i when i say that there's no country back home I mean, just look at the headlines. People are leaving mm. mass droves and you have Colombia, Ecuador, Peru and, you know, surrounding countries having to deal with the, with the effect of migration as a consequence of the collapse of a otherwise, you know, rich nation that sits on the seventh largest uh, depository of oil yeah. in the whole world. What does being patriotic mean to you in, in today's America? And that's a loaded question. We can have a whole podcast about this. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, here's the thing, um, just to kind of get to the, to the core of your question, right? Um, I think being patriotic, patriotic means, uh, someone who is willing to do the right thing for their community, state, and their country. And, you know, I don't want to get into the back and forth of what, what is good. Mm. But, you know, when you think about it, you know, I, for example, don't have an immigration status, right? Mm. So I'm covered under, under the DACA program. Mm. Mm. Um, and even though I can vote, uh, even though I, uh, I don't have the same rights as a U.S. citizen, mm. you know, I still go out there and encourage people to go vote. I help people register to vote by giving them resources. Uh, I try to get involved as much in my community and do community service. Uh, I try to help as many people, you know, as I can, whether they're U.S. citizens, legal permanent residents, they're undocumented or whatever. And I think, mm. you know, when you, when you basically boil down, you know, are you helping your country or your community progress forward in a, a very sensible matter that, mm. you know, does good, not just, you know, not only that it makes you feel good and sometimes benefits you, but that overarchingly people are able to move forward as individuals so that they themselves can also help you achieve, they themselves can also achieve their goals. I think that's probably one of the most patriotic things that you can do because at the end of the day, we all share this country, right? We all share this land. We all share these resources, et cetera, mm -hmm. and that sometimes we're always competing with. But, you know, if you can't take a second to you know, appreciate and, and, you know, say, oh, just because I can vote, I'm not going to help my friend understand why yeah. it's important to vote. Like that's, that's a disservice to everybody. So, and, and, you know, with no political game, like obviously, you know, that friend of mine may ultimately decide to vote for the opposing candidate, mm. but mm. it's the sheer fact that uh, you're trying to help someone with, with what I would deem one of the basic blocks of the art democracy. Mm. Uh, despite the fact that you don't stand to gain anything out of it, I could, I will consider that within my own uh, small universe to be a patriotic act. So what is it like to be a dreamer under Trump administration? <laughs> I think, you know, I'm 29 years old. Um, mm. And I say that mainly significantly for, for two reasons. One, um, I'm not really sure who else you're trying to uh, understand, like who else is going to end up being a, um, a guest on your program. Mm. But, I highlight my age for the simple fact that I've been doing this work on immigration, mm. um, you know, online advocacy and beyond for the past 12 or so years. Mm. Right. So I, I've, I've, I've come and gone, uh, through significant waves of, of stuff. You know, I, I was in the country when 9-11 happened, mm. uh, and the whole fight for immigration reform under President Bush fell apart. Mm. Um, I, you know, essentially saw how people were discriminated against and essentially, uh, here in New York, you know, how they were under surveillance, you know, mm, they still are. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, and, and you get to see all, all these kind of like episodes transcript. You get to see the, the election of President Obama, you know, uh, you mm. know, the promise of immigration reform, you, yeah. know, you get to see 
the Dream Act fail once, twice, three times. You get to see immigration reform fail once, two, three times, and stuff like that. And I think through my journey over the past 12 years, um, I've kind of developed a very thick skin mm. um, when it comes to this kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's some of the stuff that Donald Trump is doing to our country, wrong, scary, bad, or however you want to define it or whatever adjective you want to put into that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, am I scared? Yeah. Mm. But, you know, I would not categorize them in the same sense that I let the fear paralyze me. Mm. You know, over the past decade and change, I've been able to learn how to essentially manage and compartmentalize a lot of this kind of stuff. And although it is a heavy weight, mm. uh, I always wake up with the idea that uh, it's on me and a couple other people who are still kind of in this fight and they're my age, if not a little bit older, mm. uh, to kind of help lead the next generation of people because... You know, if, if, if I were to adjust my status, I'd say that, you know, I got married or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, that's one thing, but, um, I don't want to detach myself from this fight and not having taught the next generation that they shouldn't be afraid, that they shouldn't just cross their arms and, and stay inside and be fearful because, you know, people like Donald Trump are going to exist. Yeah. You know, uh, across the country all the time because, and just because he's our president now, he's the president of the United States. Uh, I think it's just the encapsulation of, of a variety of things that we've seen over the years. We've seen people like Steve King of Iowa, you know, be the racist that he is for the number of years that he has been in Congress. Mm. We've seen uh, the same case with, with governors like Jan Brewer, who's hand, who signed very uh, strict anti-immigrant legislation mm. back in the day. So, you know, all we've, all we've seen is just essentially just another person who is as incompetent and xenophobic and mm. intolerant as Donald Trump just be raised to the highest level, uh, to the highest office in the land. And it's a reminder that, one, these people exist. Two, uh, that people should really be involved in their communities to educate others about, you know, this kind of issue. And then three, that at the end of the day, you know, it's all about, like, participating in elections. Because if you get complacent just once, yeah. this is the kind of result that we get. So I have a question in terms of being a dreamer, but also in, in the context of gender, because last week I interviewed my friend, uh, Kelly Izike. She, um, was a dreamer. She's now U.S. permanent resident. Uh, but you being a male, um, DACA recipient, does that make it harder? Because we, we again see this rhetoric around, um, MS-13, and we see this rhetoric, it, it's similar to what we see with, again, and I always draw the, these comparisons to Muslims because uh, that's what I, like, that's what I understand most. Or are you scrutinized more as male DACA recipient? Man, I don't know if we are. You know, I've, I've, I've never really thought about it that way, mainly because uh, when you think about the people who are leading the movement, hmm. They're maybe, they're mostly females. If anything, uh, in my in my time doing this, I've always been amazed by the power and the and the you know how courageous women have been uh, in leading this movement. And you know, I'm not I, on a personal level. I've never felt more scrutinized than my peers per se. Uh, if that if if there is if, if I've if I've been scrutinized, it's probably because you know, again, I grew up in a state that was relatively, you know, friendly to immigrants. I didn't have to experience some of the horrors that some other people experienced in other very anti-immigrant states. Uh, I mentioned to you at the top of the program that I always had a social security number, you know, even though mm. after my case fell apart and I became undocumented and, mm. you know, I never got the green card that I was promised and stuff like that. Like, I always had a social security number, so I never experienced not having one. So, like... I guess, you know, if anything, I, I consider myself very, uh, you know, of a different breed altogether because I've, I've acknowledged, you know, that a lot of the privileges that I've had mm. weren't always the case for other people. Um, so I don't want to, I mean, obviously I'm going to, some people may or may not judge me. I scrutinize people based on that fact because I had a quote unquote easier path, mm. but that doesn't take away from the fact that I also struggled. Uh, to pay my tuition, to find jobs and stuff like that. Like, mm. uh, I think it's a very different side of the coin when you look at the fact that like, you know, yeah, social security number like makes all the difference, but oftentimes it's not like it, it doesn't always just break the bank. It's mm. not always, you know, the, the silver bullet that people imagine it to be, or it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, you also don't struggle. I mean, I think I had an easier path, 
but that doesn't mean that just because it was, you know, however many levels easier, mm. that it was uh, much more or less threatening in some ways or another. Yeah. Um, I guess in some ways, in, in a very microscopic level, to look at it, it's just transportation. For example, mm. if you lived in if you live in a city like New York, granted, you know, again, very friendly to immigrants and young, but you have the benefit of having you know public transportation. In Florida, you're undocumented. You have to have a car. You have to have mm. insurance. Mm. You have to drive everywhere. And yeah, granted, like at, the, at that at that point, for example, it's like a social security is not is mm. not going to prohibit you from that. Mm. So I think it's just a lot of the challenges are number one regional. Uh, number two, if, if males versus females are scrutinized in one way or another, that may be the case. Uh, if so, I haven't experienced it, but at the same time, I do think that a lot of the credit that goes on to, you know, what has developed into the quote unquote dreamers movement goes to females altogether because they are represented, they represent the majority of DACA beneficiaries and the majority of, uh, individuals who are leading yeah. Uh, in, in this space. So we have to talk about elections. Um, midterms are behind us. So what are the three major takeaways from these midterms? Man, you know, I, we, we talked about that. I'm, I'm from Florida. Um, I think part of everything right now in the midterm elections is essentially that you have to essentially see for what they are. You know, we had a, a significant increase in participation. That means more people, more people got out there and voted, uh, than in, past uh, midterm elections in, in recent history. So that's a good thing. Uh, number two, uh, I really pay attention to the midterms in the lens of my home state of Florida, right? We have a very contentious uh, uh, senatorial race between uh, Bill Nelson, Democrat incumbent, and Rick Scott, the former governor, or soon to be former governor of the state of Florida. Um, and then we also had, you know, one of the, what I would call like the national headliners, you know, you had a contest between uh, the mayor of Tallahassee, Andrew Gillum, who, uh, very good friend of mine. And, uh, actually I used to intern for him back in the day and I've known him for almost 10 years. And, uh, you know, the Republican representative, Ron DeSantis. Um, and, you know, uh, I think the energy that I saw through these contests, uh, expressed, you know, all throughout the state of Florida was just, just, just amazing. You know, mm. having lived there, for almost 18 years and, you know, seeing people as energized by, you know, candidates like Andrew or Bill Nelson, uh, it definitely gave me the sense that our state, you know, was finally going to be able to flip, uh, the, the Republican grip, uh, that has had on it since, you know, decades and decades ago. And, uh, unfortunately that wasn't the case, but, um, at the end of the day, I think when you take a step back and you see, you know, some of the gains that we actually made in Florida, for example, uh, 1.4 million felons were now, will now be able to receive their right to yeah. vote back. So that's a significant win. We were able to flip two congressional districts from Republic Democratic control. We sent, uh, you know, more Democrats into the state house. You know, we, we, uh, what else? You know, we, we, some of this type of stuff, it doesn't really apply to immigration, but, you know, at the end of the day, we were able to stop, like, offshore drilling, and yeah. we abolished the use of, I mean, or, or the, the the actual, excuse me, we outlawed dog track racing, racing mm. still up until recently in mm. Florida. Um, but, you know, going back to the issue at hand, you know, of immigration across the country, yeah, we didn't, you know, Democrats took back the House, and, uh, you know, they lost ground in the Senate and beyond, and you know, while that is true, I would venture to say as well that uh, what you have to take a look at is essentially the the, the state uh, kind of control things. You know, you had Scott Walker, a very right Republican, uh, being defeated out in Wisconsin. You had Chris Kobach, the architect of some of the most draconian anti-immigrant policies mm. in, in the ruby red state of Kansas. You know, like, I don't think a Democrat has been elected to the governor's mansion there in you know, a decade or more. Um, and, you know, to, 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 to some of the candidates like, uh, Lou Barletta and Corey Stewart, who ran for Senate and lost as well because they did so under the guise of a very, uh, anti-immigrant flag. 
basically demonizing immigrants and blaming yeah. them for the for the hurts of their state. I think there's there's a there's a bunch of lessons to be learned in here. Uh, oftentimes, our candidates may not win, but we need to find solace in the fact that, like you know, like in Florida, uh, you know, we took a step forward to onto yeah. progress. You know, 1.4 you know felons will now be able to vote. That's 1.4 million people yeah. who, who before didn't have the right to vote. How are those people going to be integrated back into through their rights? How they're going to be informed? And will those people take into account that the law that prevented them, you know, uh, from voting was often defended by Republicans and Republicans were off to the people who denied them the right, you know, back. So anyways, I think, you know, in a microcosm, uh, and not to over, you know, simplify the, the, the importance of voting and the election stuff like that. I think it's a mixed bag, you know, we can sit here and and talk about it until we're blue in the face and won. Why it matters, you know, the president have an influence and stuff like that. I don't, I think there's a little bit of truth to everything, but we have to make sure that we also take a step back and look at the bigger picture because, uh, what people often miss is the idea that, you know, immigration played a, a role in selection. And though it did, it wasn't essentially the biggest catastrophic thing that Republicans wanted it, wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. We'll see that, that their argument of demonization. Uh, kind of lost and cost them uh, a significant amount of, uh, of votes uh, at all levels of, co- of government. I believe Democrats have made some gains, major gains, and unfortunately, they don't get credit for it. And that's the sad part, because despite all the gains that you've mentioned and others, there is not as much talk about what de- Democrats have achieved through this these midterms. Rather, there is a lot of talk about uh, the Senate seats that they lost and or, or, and the losses. Um, I was also looking at this uh, recent Wall Street Journal poll that I shared with you as well. Um, and I, I was looking at different numbers. Some of them to me are not surprising at all. Rural or urban divide. But one thing that surprised me was 33% Latinos still voted Republican. Uh, I would like your um, take on that. But in addition, I'm going to say something and I want your take on that as well. Yeah. In my opinion, like when we look at these numbers um, to rural America, um, the fear of brown people taking over seems far greater than promise of equality and justice and freedom for all. Because Democrats' um, rhetorical commitment to all these principles is somehow not persuading these voters, especially in rural areas. Uh, why do you think that is the case and how can Democrats change that? And I don't think that was just one thing. I think that was a lot. Um, okay, so I think the polling is essentially indicative. For example, like uh, I, I'm assuming I don't have it in front of me, but I'm assuming you're you're, you're talking about it just essentially. Uh, is, it, is this a condensed number or is this the, the Texas number that you're, that you're referring to? It was a condensed number. Okay, so let's let, let's let's talk about both things. Let's talk about Texas, where you know a similar number manifested itself in, in a contest between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, right? Hmm. I think. When you look at essentially uh, the composition of the state and how essentially uh, it's ingrained in there, Texas is not Florida. It's a very big, it's a very unique landscape with a very unique culture and a very unique set of values that is essentially inculcated to people through generations. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think part of a lot of the polling that happens, especially in Latinos, is for us to keep mindful that we are not just one group that just fits in a box, right? People mm-hmm. have different cultures. Like Latinos come from, you know, a variety of countries that speak different Spanish, that speak, they, they have different sets of values and different things that they hold important to them. Mm-hmm. You know, some, some are more cultural than others. I mean, I have a friend of mine who, it, it, you know, she says that as a joke, but essentially it's, it's a very good example, you know, it's a good, very good example that, you know, her parents essentially always threaten her with going back to Mexico if she, if she doesn't, you know, essentially like comfort to all the all the cultural norms that are still mm. in, in place in our house, very conservative household, very, you know, religious household and stuff like that. So like, you know, some of the stuff and, you know, politics plays in, in, in hand into this is, is essentially the notion that, you know, not all Latinos are pro-choice, mm. period. Yeah. Not yeah. all Latinos just solely care about immigration. And then, you know, when you, when you put some of these stuff, when, when you put some of the stuff in on a scale, right. You know, some of it weighs one way or another. So, uh, again, 
really good example is essentially like uh, uh, the Venezuelan, you know, in the, the, the Venezuelan population. Uh, do I consider myself to be a, a center center left leaning individual? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, do some of my colleagues, you know, uh, some of the people that I, that that I have conversations with? No. They think, you know, left is a very slippery slope into socialism. See the specter of Hugo Chavez in that. You know, the United States is not Venezuela. You know, there's enough check and balances in here. Um, and fortunately, we have those to keep us from, you know, falling down, you know, this, this rabbit hole that people always try to pretend it is, you know, ignoring the fact that, you know, the opposing party is filled with very intolerable people. Mm. And I will venture to say much more, much more intolerable than some of the folks that you may see on the Democratic side. So I think that's kind of like the difference in here, right? You know, how essentially are individuals in the Latino side of things willing to, you know, weigh things at the end of the day? You know, it's an issue like immigration important to them? Absolutely. But so is abortion. So mm-hmm. is education. So is economics. And mm-hmm. all those things don't have the same weight. And it, all it takes, in my opinion, will be like one of those things to not go their way for them to and for them to feel very passionately about it. For them, you know, to to switch parties altogether because they, they, you know the candidate, you know, that will be on the on the Democratic side is, is pro choice or they don't support charter schools or whatever the case may be. And that's essentially a very easy way for you to you know check the other box and look the other way. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're a citizen, you know, what exactly quote unquote do you have to lose at that point in time because you're not voting on your future, you're voting essentially on the way that, I mean, excuse me, you're voting on your future. So why wouldn't you select with some, something that you, um, yeah, but I, but I disagree with that because I think as citizens, like I, I, I am U.S. citizen and I think our future is at stake right now. Um, no, no, totally. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, th- I think I misspoke. Like, like why would, why wouldn't people vote on behalf of something that they believe in? Right, so, like, right. granted, like you, you and I may see, you know, the composition of our future apparel right now. Hmm. But when it comes to the specific segment of pop, of the of the population, thirty percent, forty percent Latinos, what does this leave for Republicans? You know, I think it's it, it it's just much more so than just a postcard in the mail or a speech, you know, by Barack, by Beto, by Andrew Gillum or Rion. I think hmm. it's 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 way deeper than than on the surface. And who knows? You know, it's it. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I think, you know, going back to that figure that some of that number, that number will shrink, but you know, uh, it, it's also, uh, very, it, it exemplifies, you know, the difference of opinions mm-hmm. that exist amongst just one of the many, many, uh, uh, racial and cultural groups here in America. And to my second question about rural America. So I think at the end of the day, when it comes down to this kind of stuff, rural America um, is also a different beast than urban America, right? Mm. I say that mainly because when you look uh, into the heartland of the country, and I'm not saying this uh, metaphorically, I mean, like, when you look into the way of life and how these states and how these communities are composed, there's very, very stark differences between yeah. that and other parts of the country. You know, I, I, I drove, um, through South Dakota a couple of years ago. And one of the things that struck me was number one, the amount of immigrants that were there. Really? <laughs> um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. You wouldn't expect it out there, but oh yeah. <laughs> but two, also how vast and empty that, con- that, that state is. And, you know, I had to sit down and reflect on a couple of things, you know, like are people, you know, is the infrastructure right out there to explain to people, uh, you know, some of the values that they often don't understand or some of the, the ideas that they reject, is it built out there with the intention of speaking in those terms, right? I feel that the Democratic Party, the immigrant rights movement, you know, whatever apparatus you want to put forward. What we often ignore, right, is that the messaging that we use to, t- to talk to a, not- to a national audience is not the message that you're going to take back to rural Iowa, rural South mm. Dakota, mm. rural Missouri, and beyond. You know, you have to really invest into reaching out to those folks and making them understand that, you know, just because they live, they have a certain way of life, that they have a certain... Um, um, they have a, a certain um, industry, whether it's, you know, again, uh, 
whether they're farmers, whether mm. they're ranchers, you know, whatever the case may be, that not everything that they hear at the end of, the, of, of a long day of work, whether it's on Fox News or on the news, is 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 true. You know, yeah. we you know have the privilege of being able to live in a in a society that has you know the internet and we have we have you know cell phones and we have all these things and you know I, I will venture to say you know it's it's yeah it's responsibility of people to outreach to these folks and it's you know just as it's responsibility for them to be informed but uh i live under a, a very specific principle that when it comes to very thorny issues right you know my mm. mother always said you know you when you go to someone's house you don't talk about politics you don't talk about religion <laughs> but it, when it, you know undoubtedly we live in a we live in a society that demands those kind of conversations those very tough conversations but because you know we need to bridge that gap at one point or another and it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be weird, but you know what? We need to do it. Uh, I always, you know, uh, promote the idea that it's conversations across people, you know, for like real heartfelt conversations that essentially bridge a lot of these diff- indifferences. And while you may not be able to solve everything, I always leave with it with the fact that you were able to have a real conversation with someone that's at the middle. People mm. who are at the extreme right or at the extreme left you're never going to be able to convince those people the center will sway one way or another because they read something on the paper or they heard something on, on tv and then they're like oh my god like my my neighbor says this so like that's three strikes right there that must be true but in their hearts of hearts they may not feel that way there's a really good there's a really good episode um you know to kind of uh, kind of end this on uh, on that, there's a really good episode on uh, on This American Life, you know, the program hmm. from NPR. Yeah, I, I, where, I'm a big fan. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's one of those podcast episodes where they essentially go all the way to Alaska to this small town who is trying to pass a resolution in support of immigrants and refugees. And there's no immigrants refugees in this town. That's how small it is, and it becomes this like intra debate amongst the citizens and the residents of that town because they fear that if they pass this legislation at the city level at the city level that somehow some way immigrants are going to find out and move into homer alaska that's the name of the town oh wow but yeah it sounds preposterous but the main crux of the of the episode uh is essentially the interview that they have with a man a resident of that that um of that town and they ask him, you know, like, how do you feel about this? It's like, well, I'm, all, I'm not sure. I haven't developed a position. It's like, well, you know, based on, you know, like, how will you derive an opinion? It's a really good case and example, right, as to, like, how this individual who lives in Alaska his whole life, you know, very quickly to Breitbart and then develops these very right-wing opinions, but then eventually realizes that some of the stuff seems exaggerated. And he goes back all the way to the left and then it's like, well, this is also exaggerated. And he essentially pieces together that, you know, sometimes the truth is not as easy to convey or to, to, to have because there's no, there, there's no, uh, there's no connection to it. Mm. You know, this person is never presented with an immigrant that may live in Alaska. This person is not really fully understanding. They just read about it in books or they see it on TV. And it's mm-hmm. very, you know, detrimental, in my opinion, to the public discourse as to how you're not able to see that in a much more concentrated way. How do immigrants impact your state? And if mm-hmm. they don't impact your city because you don't have any, which I find that's extremely hard to believe, then, you know, how exactly do they impact your state? And, you know, where exactly is the proof that some of the people on the right or on the left want you to believe? Because at the end of the day, that's always going to be a game, right? Uh, yeah. And it's a sad game because it's a game of opinions, it's a game of votes, it's a game of policy. And instead of us coming down to the realization that we're human beings, we may act differently, but we're still human beings, mm. you know, we're never going to make any progress. So anyways, I think that there was a lot of, a little bit of there. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of something in there for everybody. So to your point about how immigrants impact, uh, I know you want everybody to know that despite being undocumented, you and your parents continue to pay taxes uh, because, again, the rhetoric around uh, immigrants or undocumented immigrants uh, is that they don't pay taxes and all. Uh, Why is it so important to you that people know that 
being even being undocumented, you still pay taxes. I think it's just the sheer fact to combat a lot of the misconceptions that mm. we're getting a free ride or that we get this for like a special benefit. I mean, if you think about it, uh, we do the right thing because, uh, you know, when my parents came into this country and, you know, as many people, they don't want to take without, you know, putting pitching back into the pot. Mm. The irony of this whole thing is just that, you know, we pitch into the pot, but we don't get anything in return because we're unable to because of our immigration status. Mm. So, it's, you know, oftentimes we get into these uh, very heated battles about like, you know, what benefits immigrants receive and whatnot. But, you know, you, you have to go back and remember that a significant portion of taxes, I think is to the ring of like 11, 13 billion dollars mm. added and to the pot by people who can't claim them, you know, people who can't claim social security mm. or any sort of other program or any sort of quote unquote welfare program at the end of the day, because they're unable to do to their immigration status. Mm. So what will happen, you know, it's kind of like a, like a catch 22. Mm. We're damned that we do and we damned that we don't. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, people really need to understand that if we, if we all, all 11 million, 11 million undocumented immigrants had a conference and decided to simultaneously pay taxes, mm. who's going to, who's going to go out there and replenish that $13 billion hole mm. in the economy? Exactly. Exactly. So Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals up, upheld a nationwide injunction blocking the White House from rescinding DACA. It seems like DACA fight will end up in Supreme Court. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, it's too early to say what exactly is going to happen. I think a lot of people are taking a very pessimistic view with the confirmation of yeah. Neil Gorsuch. But at the same and time, Kavanaugh. Know, it's just correct between uh, Supreme Court Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Mm. Uh, people are taking a very pessimistic route. I very much so like to like to live under the idea that we still haven't seen a single court that has ruled against the program. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, when it, it's going to be a very good test for the Supreme Court, whether or not they realize that, you know, lower courts have consistently ruled in favor of this program and have been that the administration is trying to end the program in a very capricious way to just create political chaos, mm. not because it's prudent policy or a good idea, just because they want to axe it altogether. Okay. So at the end of the day, what we're, mm. we're heading to the Supreme Court. I've, you know, I don't want to make any predictions, but I was I was suspect that we'll get a hearing, you know, somewhere mid next year, and from there we'll watch see what the court decides. Okay, so if you were to describe America in one word, what would it be? Hopeful. And if you could change one thing about America, what would that be? It's immigration system. <laughs> That's what I'm working for. <laughs> uh, good one. And if um, you could change one misconception about immigrants. We don't take free we don't take free anything from anyone yes we'll work for it that's absolutely true okay so before we end our interview i want to ask you some fun questions we've, we've talked about some serious stuff and now we'll move on to some fun stuff so it's called my rapid fire round so it will be like you just have to answer all these questions um reading books or listening to music listen to music if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? Pizza. Pizza? Really? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, if you could only... You know how many ways you can make pizza? No. <laughs> well, that's a lot. You know, it's interesting. I, I live in New York and I haven't had pizza in New York City. I've, I live in Burbs, so I've had pizza here, but mm. not, not, not New York City pizza. It's sad. But mm. uh, it's good. <laughs> I've heard it is good. I should try it. Uh, if you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? An internet connection, a phone, and some food. Oh, okay. <laughs> Name three things on your bucket list. Oh man, visit more national parks. Oh man, <laughs> bucket list. H have you visited any? Oh yeah, of course. I, I actually drove to Moab to go to the uh, Archive National Park and oh. then um you know the trip was supposed to go to Yellowstone but I wasn't able to. Oh my god, Yellowstone is beautiful. You should absolutely yeah. visit that. One day, one day. I don't know. I think uh, I, I'll pass on the on the bucket list just because every I mean like I have one. I just really uh, It keeps on changing. 
I think it just evolves altogether. I okay. think like like not not too long ago, I got to um, I got to go to the um, the haunted mansion over at Disneyland in California, which mm. they dressed it up completely different uh, than the one they do in Florida. So I was like, oh, I always wanted to come here for you know Halloween at Disneyland, mm. and that was a bucket list item. Mm. Okay, so if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Mind reading. Mm-hmm. Your biggest failure. My biggest failure, I think, is uh, not pushing hard enough uh, when I could have to pass the dream. I failed by five votes, mm. and I feel like I could have done more. Mm. Your biggest achievement? You know, uh, overcoming my fear and you know, dedicating, to, dedicating myself to being a full-time advocate for immigrants. Describe yourself in three words. Short, stubborn, <laughs> uh, and internet-obsessed. <laughs> I guess it's not three words, but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? Never tell. No, and I, and I know this sounds very cliche, but like, never let people tell you no. Yeah. You know what I mean. Mm. I think mm. right now, especially uh, you know, as, as we're recording this, I'm going through a very uh, specific time in my life mm. where you know. It's not that I have a problem with authority and challenging it. I think some of my colleagues at work um, may, mm. may, may feel that way. Mm. Mm. Uh, but I feel that oftentimes because we get ingrained in positions of power yeah. or we want to be superior to other people, we don't listen to each other. Yeah. Um, and that's a very big detriment to everybody. So to me, I always have told myself that I wasn't going to let a no stop me because mm. if you think about it uh, and, I, and I use myself as an example just because you know it's it's never failed me mm. if you think about it you know if if I had let someone tell me no you can't go to school mm. the first time just because I didn't have a piece of paper then would I have gone and graduated with a degree in political science and then a master's in public administration mm. no if I let someone let me you know tell me that I wasn't gonna be able to you know, hold a specific job or that I couldn't learn something that, you know, would I have set out to do that? No. Mm. I think oftentimes we, we, we let ourselves get the, the, you know, the, the worst possible outcome because some one, some like one single person tells us no. Mm. And what I always tell people is essentially, you know, the reason why I went to school was because yeah, the first person that I went to told me no. And you know what I did? <laughs> I went on every single door until someone told me yes. Yeah. Your idea of vacation? Oh my God, like a cabin in the woods where no one can find me. <laughs> Your all-time favorite movie? Yeah, I don't know. I really like Three Tanky Yuma. I don't know mm. if that's my all-time favorite movie, but it's a really good Western. Hmm. Who's the last person you texted? My mom. Instagram or Twitter? Both. Netflix or TV? <laughs> Um, Netflix. I don't have, to, I don't have cable. Yeah. Uh, best Venezuelan restaurant in, I was going to ask you New York, but you don't live in New York. So DC. No, let's do New York. There is a, um, there's a Venezuelan joint up in New York called Arepas Cafe. Hmm. I think it's, I think it's in Manhattan. Let me see. No, no. It's in Astoria. It's good. Hmm. Favorite emoji. Let me tell you right now. I have a couple. I think it's between. I think it's always been between. You know the the, the laughing crying person. Yeah. But the recent. You know, like le- the last round, they added like a pensive one that has a little hand on his chin. I like that one. Oh, um, I haven't seen that one. I I look it up. Um, pie or cake? What kind of pie? Any pie, I mean, uh, no, like, like there's a difference between, between like a cherry pie and a blueberry pie. Like, okay. I think it depends. Okay, it let's depends do a- apple pie like, or cake. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe apple pie. That's what I feel like right now. Like pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Home is. What do you mean? I'm sorry. Home is. Um, where you're comfortable. Yeah. Thank you so much, Juan, for coming to our show and sharing your thoughts uh, on some very important issues. I would like to thank all the listeners for joining us today and those who have supported us. 
Also, if you like what you hear, share it with like-minded people. And if you have a story to tell or any ideas, please contact us at thealienchronicles at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien. And you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected.